the fact that abortion is no longer a constitutional right is a massive shaking of the thinking of the American people. That's where the other side is screaming even louder. Abortion is right, abortion is right. You can't even say it. You can't even raise a question about it. You can't even offer alternatives. We're shutting down the pregnancy resource centers that just help women who don't really want an abortion. They just think they can't take care of a child. So the ones that offer options and help, they're being threatened and burned down. That's. That's, that's a terrible way to run a society, but that's where we are. The Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade, but it certainly wasn't the end of legal battles over abortion. Welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. You could say that the fight is just beginning in courtrooms and legislative chambers across the country. Alan Parker with the Justice Foundation has been involved in the legal battle for several years, and he joins us here today on Dear Jane. Alan, how has the legal landscape changed since Dobbs? Well, there's two major differences that I note. Before, it was a battle against a single outpost, the Supreme Court of the United States. So we kind of had a national effort against one point that we were trying to smash through the gates and take over that outpost. Well, praise God, that's happened. And we have... Uh, achieved a mighty victory at the Supreme Court, which many people never thought would happen. And uh, it's the second major social transformation that I've lived in. Uh, The first was the fall of communism and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I, I was in Strasbourg, France, three months before that happened. No one thought it would happen, and it did. It's the same way with Dobbs. Many people thought it would never happen, and it did. So the battle has shifted from one point at the Supreme Court to 150 battlefields across the state. Why do I say that? There are 50 states, and normally you might might just have one battlefield in each state, but on this issue, there are three battlefields, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch of each state government. So first you have to pass a law in the legislature. And like I live in Texas and I'm I'm blessed to say that I live in a state where abortion is criminally illegal. And we pretty much have stopped it from being done legally in Texas. But there are district attorneys, prosecutors, members of the executive branch of government whose sworn duty is to enforce the law who are refusing to enforce the law. And so that's the second branch of government, the executive, which becomes your battleground. And that can include the governor, who then has to either sign or veto legislation. And then your third branch is the state judiciaries. We're seeing some state court judges that are being just as non-judicial and oligarchical as the Supreme Court was in creating a right to abortion out of whole air under the state constitution that the Supreme Court did incorrectly in Roe v. Wade. So that's why there's 150 battles instead of just 50 battles or one. And doesn't that make our work on the pro-life side that much harder? In a way, it is harder. But I do want to say some encouraging things, because the second thing, it's different, uh, 
is that the abortionists are screaming abortion forever, abortion forever. And it started the first time I saw that was on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court on the day of the Dobbs decision, which ultimately reversed Roe v. Wade. And I was there for the oral argument. Our organization was uh, blessed by the Lord to be able to file five briefs in the Dobbs case, more than any other organization in America. And I say that to give glory to God. He just happened to give us an amazingly diverse group of clients. I represent over 2,249 women injured by abortion in that case. I represent the moral outcry petition to reverse Roe v. Wade, which has now been changed to the moral outcry petition to make abortion illegal in all 50 states. And I represented the first formerly frozen human embryo to ever file a brief at the Supreme Court that we know of. Uh, and so we just had amazing things. But they were shouting abortion forever, abortion forever. And that was the cry of the segregationist just before segregation ended in America. And just like George Wallace stood in front of the steps and fought against the Supreme Court decision, the states are doing that now. And uh, I believe we're going to, it's we're in the de-abortioning of America. And like 1954, we went from segregation was approved by the Supreme Court for 58 years everywhere in America. Ten years later, we passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which made discrimination illegal everywhere in America. So I think it's a hard time like that. That terrible time was. But we're going to be triumphant ultimately. I like the comparison because I have often said that I would love for us as a nation to get to the point where we think about abortion in the same way that we think about slavery now. And that is, you know, what were we thinking? You know, how was that ever acceptable? And I would love to get to that point on abortion, but you use the term de-abortioning of America. And, and I'll admit that I, I don't know if you saw my eye roll a little bit or something, because I'm skeptical, Alan, I got to tell you, um, I hope you're right. Uh, but you know, I see some of the, um, well, first you see the, you know, they see opinion polls on how people feel about abortion, and that seems to be changing. People are more accepting. Uh, but then you see some of the actions in some of the states like Minnesota and Colorado and some of these others. And I think, well, we don't have any momentum at all. So, so, so give me hope a little bit. The de-abortioning of America, why do you think so? Um, I represent the moral outcry petition. And... Uh, Melinda Thibault is the founder of that. She came to us in about 2017 and said, Alan, has anybody ever filed a petition with the Supreme Court to reverse Roe v. Wade? And I thought a minute and said, no, I don't think they have. I think I would know. This is kind of my field of expertise. And she said, well, can it be done? And then I thought, hmm, well, there's no rule against it. So, yes, I think it can be done. But it had never been done before in history. And uh, I had to tell people, don't when you talk to other lawyers, they may tell you this can't be done because it's never been done before. But there's no rule that says you can't do it. So there's no reason it can't be done. And uh, 
in the final Dobbs case, we represented Melinda and we had 539,108 signers of the moral outcries petition signatures names in our brief. That would have been impossible in earlier days. It would have been 11,000 page brief. And, but we put it in the Dropbox in the Supreme Court. Uh, and why do I say that? Melinda got this vision in a, in a prayer session once, a kind of a picture in her mind. She was the international pro-life prayer director at International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And uh, she got this symbol that you could see in the movie Amazing Grace of William Wilberforce rolling out a petition to Parliament to end slavery in the British Empire. And, uh, you know, we, and, and so she got it in prayer. She talked to me and we began to pray and we put five reasons in the moral outcry petition and two of them were actually mentioned by Supreme Court justices in the oral argument and written about in the Dobbs decision. And these five reasons together, if we get say, three or four or five million people signing the petition, the result, it's a public interest litigation strategy. It will convince uh, people that abortion should be as unthinkable and illegal as slavery and segregation, which were crimes against humanity created by the United States Supreme Court. And yet we've now seen the Supreme Court reverse that process, beginning and ending, ultimately, with finding a right to life in the Constitution, I believe, that will protect life to, in the world. To get to where we want to go, it's going to require political will, um, which is certainly influenced by public opinion. Um, and I just, you I mean, where do you see public opinion going? I mean, do you really I, see it go, starting to go in our favor? Yes. Let me give you the reasons of the moral outcry petition, which two out of five were so important to the Supreme Court that they mentioned them. All right. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you the top three that I think will end the abortion wars when enough people believe these. Number one, abortion is a crime against humanity. That occurs when the government withdraws legal protection from a class of human beings, resulting in severe deprivation of rights up to and including death. And we pointed out, when, when people think about a crime against humanity, often they'll think about the Holocaust, because that's where the term of art comes from. But we referred the Supreme Court to the ones America committed, and the Supreme Court committed. Slavery, the Dred Scott decision, said African-Americans were an inferior race, not entitled to any respect by the white man and that they never would have rights under the constitution. That was the Supreme Court that said that. The result was a civil war. Now the second crime was segregation. After we had the civil war, we passed the 14th amendment said, no person shall be deprived of equal protection. That was designed to protect African-Americans. But segregation was created by the Democrat party in the South enforced by the Ku Klux Klan with many Democratic officials in it. And then the Supreme Court accepted in 1896 in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson. And for 58 years, segregation was the law of the land enshrined in the Constitution, 
until 1954 when the Supreme Court reversed Plessy versus Ferguson in Brown v. Board of Education, which everyone agrees today is a great case. No one wants to go back and reinstitute slavery or segregation. So number one, it's a crime against humanity. And segregation was brought up by Justice Alito and Kavanaugh. And they said to the Solicitor General of the United States, if someone had come, well, first they asked, was Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court's uh, segregation decision, was it wrong? So here's the Solicitor General of the United States defending abortion. Yes, Your Honor, it was wrong. Of course, it was wrong. And he said, well, if someone had come eight years later and asked us to reverse it, should we have reversed it? And she began to ham and haw and everything because that's what Mississippi was asking. This is such a terrible thing. We need to reverse Roe. But finally, she said, well, this case has, this court has never reversed a Supreme Court decision without a major change in circumstances or law. Well, then Justice Amy Coney Barrett brought up our second argument, which was the safe haven argument. Doesn't the safe haven law eliminate the burden of parenting in every state? Now, let me explain for your listeners first, what is a safe haven law? We all want to help women. What is the burden for a woman? I represent thousands of women hurt by abortion. Everything I know about abortion comes from women hurt by abortion. And we must let these women's voices be heard. We put 4,728 legally admissible written testimonies of the devastating psychological consequences into the Dobbs case. And they didn't quote it this time, but the Supreme Court has quoted those testimonies in the past, but it was in their heart. So she said, doesn't the safe haven law eliminate the burden of parenting? And that's why Roe v. Wade was passed. No woman gets an abortion because she wants to kill a child. She just says, I can't take care of a baby. I don't want a baby right now at this time. Either I don't want one or I can't take where. That's why women get abortion. They're not, you know, they're not evil. I want to, I want to sacrifice a child. Now there may be a few like that in America, but that's not why women do it generally. So we need to help women. Now, today, unlike in 1973, every single state has a safe haven law under which no woman has to parent a child if she doesn't want to. She can simply relinquish the child at a designated place, usually a fire station or hospital, within a designated time after abortion, three, usually three, 30, 60, or 90 days, and she's free of the burden of parenting. She doesn't have to parent the child. And she doesn't, it doesn't cost her anything like, unlike an abortion does. So it's equally available to the rich and the poor. And we don't have, and so we can say, don't kill the baby. Don't hurt yourself, which is our third major argument. Abortion hurts women. So it's a crime against humanity. It hurts women. Don't kill the baby. Don't hurt yourself. Instead, give us your child. We will be the compassionate society. We will be the government safety net. I know some groups like the Catholic Church has offered this service forever. Project Gabriel said, if you can't take care of your child, give us your child. But some people don't like the Catholic Church. They, for whatever reason, they, they want a government safety net. 
this exists in every state. So even a woman in Texas or a state that bans abortion, she doesn't have to go to New Mexico to get free of the burden of parenting. Now, what are the expenses of pregnancy? Usually it's just medical care and uh, uh, prenatal care and delivery. Well, every state in the union will pay for low-income families to get that for free. Every state. That's already the law. In Texas, Texas pays for 50% of the births in Texas already. So the woman's only expense is some clothing maybe as she grows larger. And I've talked with many women about this. So don't kill the baby. Don't hurt yourself. Give us the child. Now, the last question, this is argument number four, what's going to happen to those children? Well, this is a little known fact, but needs to be publicized. And that's what the moral outcry petition does. It helps publicize this. There are actually legally, factually on the government website, you can find it, one to two million women and families a year waiting to adopt newborn children. They may not feel capable of taking care of an abused and neglected child, but they want and say, I can take care of a newborn baby. And they want to do that. So the, the moral outcry petition is the love, love, love solution. Let's love the child and give the child justice. Let's have mercy for the mother. Please don't hurt yourself. Don't have abortion-related trauma. Give us the child through the safe haven law at no cost to you. Let's not disproportionately kill black children and brown children in America. Let's not be racist about it. Let's take every child under law, all are equal, and then we'll give them to the loving homes waiting to adopt newborn children. We're visiting with Alan Parker from the Justice Foundation, and we're talking about how the legal landscape has changed uh, and been impacted since the Dobbs decision. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the moral outcry and the arguments that it makes. We'll do that next here on Dear Jane. Are you a pregnancy center or pro-life organization that wants to grow your life-saving mission in a way that effectively reaches women who need help? At Choose Life Promo, our ultimate goal is to help organizations empower women to choose life. We take our design and marketing expertise to the next level, creating apparel, videos, and other items that are eye-catching and attractive ripe with accurate information specifically for women that need support and spread awareness about your pregnancy center to donors and potential supporters at choose life promo our mission is to impact our culture to choose life through communication strategies grounded in both research and biblical values. We want to give you promotional items that inspire donations and also educate the abortion-minded woman about your pregnancy center so she can receive the care and support she needs. Saving lives is always in style. Learn more at ChooseLifePromo.com. And we're back here on Dear Jane, visiting with Alan Parker from the Justice Foundation. Uh, Alan, you've been explaining the moral outcry petition and the arguments that are made within. Uh, let me play devil's advocate for just, just a minute. So the, the first one of the first arguments is that abortion is a crime against humanity. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's literally killing 
an innocent human being. So that's a slam dunk, I would think. Second, you mentioned safe haven laws, how they negate problems associated with parenting. Every state has a safe haven law that eases the burden of those who do not want to parent. Uh, So I think that's a strong argument. The one I get hung up on, or or the one where I could see there being uh, some, oh well, obviously a lot of pushback from the other side, is the part about that it hurts women. I agree that's true. I think that's absolutely true. We've had plenty of guests on this podcast that illustrate the painful impact abortion has on women. But the other side would then they would bring up women who say, well, they're happy with their abortion. They would parade these biased doctors and medical groups who would argue the opposite, that it's positive health care for women. How do you refute their attempts at contradiction? Well, first of all, I say, well, I'm glad for you that the abortion trauma hasn't affected you, or at least it hasn't affected you yet. Because for many years, it may be decades later later when they come to the realization they've killed their child, but I'm happy for you. But you can't deny the testimony of these other women who've had decades of trauma, nightmares, inability to bond. And let's just pick a extremely low number. I think it's 50% or more of the women who suffer, but let's assume it's just 10% of the women who suffer. If it's a million abortions a year, that's 100,000 women a year. Do you want 100,000 women a year suffering because you just want your immediate gratification? Because what the safe haven law says as a society, we're going to take the option of killing a human being off the table, but in exchange for 18 years relief of the obligation of parenting, we're asking you to bear some months of pregnancy, which is a serious obligation. And if you're, but we're dealing with a serious issue of taking the life of the human being. And the Supreme Court has it, and and particularly for the women who's making the decision, we're trying to stop 10%, 100,000 women a year from being damaged. And you don't know which ones that will be in the future. Maybe you didn't have it, but you tell a friend of yours to get it. She may be the one that gets the bad trauma. So why do that? Now, when we, we have a better safety net than that, we all want to have compassion for women. And in exchange for 18 years of freedom from parenting, we're asking them to bear some months of pregnancy rather than kill a human being. And there are resources we can offer during that pregnancy to help in the process as well. It's not like we are abandoning them and say, see you in nine months. Good luck. Uh, That's right. You know, there are many things within the pro-life movement that we're where we come alongside them and help. That cruel compassion is actually what the other side is forcing on women. Like, and uh, one of the ways, like 10 minutes, you'll never have to think about it again. That's one of the things they told to one of our women, you know, and that's a common thing in the abortion industry, or you might feel regret, or you might feel relief. Most women feel relief. Now, because this is a crisis, psychosocial decision for most women, when it's over, the immediate reaction may be relief because it's over, you think. But then the conscience begins to bother you. It may be that you go, well, for example, one of the women, some of the women describe it this way. They were fine with their first abortion, but then later when they wanted to have a child, they went into a doctor and the doctor says, here, I'm going to show you the sonogram you can hear the heartbeat. I'm testifying what a woman told me. She said, doctor, that can't be true. There's no heartbeat. 
They told me there was no heartbeat. There can't be a heartbeat. Doctor says, here it is, boop, 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 boop. And suddenly, instead of being joyful at the birth of her child, she's sobbing and saying, my God, I killed my first baby. And I'll tell you, something's like that's happening in the babe, in the, uh, the abortion industry that I think will help ultimately make abortion unthinkable. This pill involves the woman in the actual abortion at a deeper psychological abortion than a, a, a deeper psychological level than a psych, than a, a surgical abortion. Here's why. And again, I'm telling you what the women have told me. Like I remember the woman screaming and sobbing on our lot on the phone when she called us for help. They lied to me. They lied to me. It's a baby. It's a baby. I have my baby in my hand. Because when they pass the baby at home, it's usually in their bed, perhaps laying down if they're feeling the cramps, which are expelling the dead baby. The first pill kills the baby. And women call it a baby. Women don't go to a doctor and say, doctor, how's my fetus doing? It's how's my baby doing? Uh, and when they see it in their hand or in the toilet, sometimes they're just down looking at it in the toilet. And if they pass this big clump, they want to see what it is. And many of them will sob. Some people may have seen that movie Unplanned. Uh, where, But it, 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 women are, are, are having the trauma in their home. And trauma especially moral injury trauma can become associated with the place. So before many of our women say they'd never drive by that abortion clinic. They never went to that part of town. They want to get it out of their mind forever. Now it's your own bathroom, your own bedroom. Are you going to sell your home to get rid of it? Uh, it's traumatizing at a deeper level than perhaps being sedated and having an operation on you. So do you believe, getting back to uh, some of the uh, Supreme Court activity that we talked about, and you mentioned the cases related to segregation and, and, and civil rights, that sort of thing, do you, as you look at those, the history, do you think Supreme Court action will influence public opinion towards life? Uh, is that the, the, the progression of things, or, or is it the Absolutely. other way around? I'm so glad you asked that question, because sometimes people on our side say, oh, we don't need to have a law. We're just going to make abortion unthinkable. Well, that ignore and we must make abortion illegal and unthinkable. I agree with that. But they just want to make it unthinkable so they don't need a law. But the law is a teacher. And when you have a law, many people think this must be morally correct or our Supreme Court would not have allowed it. And many of the women say to me, I wasn't the kind of girl who would do something illegal. I followed the law. And now, and the Supreme Court said it was okay. I didn't want to be pregnant, so I got an abortion. And some of them say, I went in to find the truth from Planned Parenthood. And they ask questions like, is it a baby? That's how women talk. They don't say, would you explain the stages of fetal development to me? And they get misleading, deceptive, untruthful answers like one from test, one sworn testimony was, don't be stupid. It's just a mass of tissue. And you know what, uh, Scott, I could say to you, you're a mass of tissue, Scott. At one level, that is true, but that's not all you are. And it's not a reason to snuff out your existence. You are a human being 
We are more than a mass of tissue. And that's the heart of what the women are asking for. Uh, so number one, the fact that abortion is no longer a constitutional right is a massive shaking of the thinking of the American people. That's why the other side is screaming even louder. Abortion is right. Abortion is right. You can't even say it. You can't even raise a question about it. You can't even offer alternatives. We're shutting down the pregnancy resource centers that just help women who don't really want an abortion. They just think they can't take care of a child. So the ones that offer options and help, they're being threatened and burned down. That's 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 a terrible way to run a society, but that's where we are. But we're going to see the truth more able to come out now that the Supreme Court decision has been changed. So those of us in the pro-life community obviously celebrate the Dobbs decision. Uh, and, and, and you talked about some of the reasons here. Here's a, here's maybe a strange question. Is there a downside to the Dobbs decision? And here's what I mean by that. I see some of the things going on in some of the states like uh, Minnesota, for example, that codified abortion in, into their state constitution. And I want to talk about that a little bit to inform people what what that means exactly. But, um, you know, they're they are allowing things now that um, are just unthinkable. What's legal? If, take Minnesota, for example. Now, what's legal there is unthinkable. Uh, and, and it seems like a regression. So, so is there a downside of Dobbs or, or is there not a connection there? You see what I'm getting at? Yes. There, there's not a downside of the Dobbs decision itself, but there is a downside to some of the arguments that were made to get us to that point. And I will analogize it, but it was necessary to reverse row first. In order to end slavery, it required a two-step process in the United States and England. First, we abolished the slave trade, then we abolished slavery. Reversing Roe v. Wade was a necessary first step because no state could ban abortion under Roe. Now we have 13 or 14 states, depending on how you count them, we've actually banned abortion. So that's a great thing. We're farther along. But there was a hint of the argument, and there are some people making the argument, that this is a state's rights matter. That is not true. Our briefs always argued there is a right to life under the Constitution. Now, Mississippi did not ask them to find a right to life in the Constitution. So the Supreme Court did not decide the question of whether there was a right to life under the Constitution. Mississippi was taking upon itself to say, we want to protect life at 15 weeks conception. So all that was necessary to support the Mississippi law was to reverse Roe v. Wade. And you couldn't find a right to life before you reverse Roe v. Wade because Roe v. Wade said there's a right to abortion. Abortion is the opposite. That's a right to death in the Constitution. So now we're in phase two. And that's why the moral outcry petition is so important and why it's, it builds towards the ultimate goal. And this battle is now a, a national battle. I said it was 150 battles at the beginning, but for all of us who are pro-life, we have to think of it as everywhere a state is battling, people in other states need to come to that battle and help that state. 
And uh, we've got to, the other side is doing that. But, but let me go back to the analysis. Abortion is a crime against humanity because it's depriving a person, a human being. And there is a right to life in the Constitution. And that is undeniable. You can point to it. The fourth and the 15th amendments say no person shall be deprived of life. Okay? Now, so it's clear. So the only question is, what does life mean? You could say, what does person mean? And there's talk about person amendments. But I believe we just need to focus on the word life. There's a right to life. You can, you can say anybody. So what does life mean? Life meant a human being. And that included children who were human beings in the womb at the time that the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments were passed by the people. One of the most famous commentators of the English and American law was Blackstone. And his commentary says, what is, a, what is life? And it says, life begins uh, in the womb. And he says, it's evidence when the child quickens. And that's when, you know, the baby starts kicking the mom and she can feel the baby moving. And that's evidence that the child was alive. So if you had asked people when they passed the 14th Amendment, oh, is a person in the womb a person? Is that if they looked at a woman who was pregnant, said, what do you got in your belly? A baby, a human being, a person. There was no no one at that time thought, oh, it's an amphibian. It's a frog. It's a snake. It's nothing like that. What was the common understanding of the people who adopted and ratified the 5th and the 14th Amendments? That's what judges are supposed to follow. The meaning of the Constitution as it was written. What does it say? There is a right to life in the Constitution. So we have to write legal arguments. We have to make this argument. It took a long time to get the Supreme Court comfortable that it was legally true, and that a substantial number of Americans believed that that was true. In order for them to feel comfortable making what is a very substantial social change in American life, there's no question that that's what it was. You don't do that lightly. Uh, And so it may take the court a little while to do that, just as it took our country a while to move from segregation to no segregation, but it will happen. So you mentioned earlier 150 battlefields. And so as people are listening and they're trying to keep track of what's happening in their state, um, you know, we've got people from all the states listening and and, uh, maybe they like what they see happening in their state capital, or maybe they're just appalled by what they see happening. Um, sort of give us a, a 101, if you will, uh, in terms of abortion being codified into law or into the Constitution, but then we see restrictions being passed, that sort of thing. What's the difference? What should people in the pro-life movement be keeping their eye on at the state level moving forward? Let me say, first of all, one of the greatest dangers has already been eliminated. And we often don't celebrate our successes often enough. The greater you mentioned the word codification. There is an opera there. The Democrats would have loved to make abortion a federal legislative right. Uh, it's too hard to amend the Constitution, though they're trying that also. They want to say the uh, Equal Rights Amendment has been ratified by enough states. 
Therefore, it's part of the Constitution and the equal rights mean women. In order to be equal men, they should be able to get rid of the babies in their womb because men don't have to have babies. That's their equal rights argument. That's kind of foolish, but it's being made. The other more likely was if they had controlled the House, the Senate, the presidency for two more years, they might have passed a federal law and that would have wiped out every state law restricting abortion if they'd made federal uh, abortion a federal right. But now that Republicans control the House, we won't be able to pass anything in the law because it won't pass the Senate or the president. But we should be able to stop the codification of Roe v. Wade. So we've already dodged one major bullet, and that's good. But in state, the hardest thing for us to uh, fight against are statewide referendum and initiative efforts. And in a way, that's a whole new, new battlefield. It's not the legislative. It's not the executive. It's not the judicial. It's the people themselves, in theory, in these states, not every state has a ballot initiative or a way for the people to get something into their constitution or law. But because it's a statewide election, which means everybody can vote, whether they're well-informed or low-informed on the issue, and I'm not going to say ignorant, nobody can know everything about every legislative issue, but well-informed or low-informed, uh, it's, they can be complex issues and sound bites can control and fear can control. And the other size has, has massive more amounts of money. So one of the ways we're trying to use the moral outcry petition to counteract that, for example, Ohio has it on the state ballot in November for a constitu state constitutional right to abortion. Well, we want all the moral outcry petition signers to join together to fight that in Ohio. When it's a statewide protection for any extreme form of abortion and we have the least amount of money, our brothers and sisters in those states need our help the most and we can all do things. And if we stay in touch, if we get emails from each, when you sign the petition, you're gonna get emails from us. now. We hope we don't do it too much, but you got to know what's going on if you're going to get involved in the battle. I say that in some of the battles we're on, you have to have an army working together. The other side loves to get together. Conservatives like to be left alone and kind of live our own life. Now, to that point, and, and you know, you mentioned how the other side is so well funded and that sort of thing. You know, one of the people can say, well, OK, what does that exactly mean or what's the impact of that? One of the areas where I think we see that is anytime a law passes that the pro-abortion side doesn't like, they are quick to litigate in favorable areas. They are, they are lined up, ready to go. Uh, and so, as I, for example, as I was talking to people in Minnesota and, and the writing was on the wall where this was going to go, I said to them, do you have litigation ready to go upon the governor's signature? And they're like, well, mm, I don't know, maybe that's what you mean, right? I mean, that's yes. one of the way it manifests itself yes. by being much more organized and having fun is they're able to do that. Yes. Now, I will say, and again, I'm trying to be both realistic and encouraging because that's the way I live my life. Uh, in the Dobbs case, for the first time in American history, we vastly outnumbered them 
at the U.S. Supreme Court, there were 80 pro-life briefs compared to 40 pro-death briefs. So we outnumbered them two to one. And that helped us have a victory at the Supreme Court. And that we had to have many voices writing those briefs. There were uh, religious voices, there were secular voices, there were doctor voices, there were women hurt by abortion. Many, many voices are needed in politics and in government. And government has to listen to many people. So sometimes on our side, we say, why don't we all just get together and form one organization to do one thing? That's not helpful in politics. I, I, I support many organizations, and I encourage all of your listeners to support many organizations, and small monthly donations to many organizations are better than a big one-time gift, in my opinion. It gives sustainability to many organizations. The website again, themoraloutcry.com. Alan Parker with the Justice Foundation, thank you for joining us here on Dear Jane. Is your marketing plan built to withstand the political, cultural, and spiritual battles you face in the post-row world? The Samaritan Summit exists to help you navigate these new challenges so your message isn't compromised and so you can reach as many abortion-determined women as possible. This year's summit will be in Nashville on September 19th through the 21st. Our workshops will help you confidently assemble your board and leadership team, help you welcome women into your center who are confused by deceptive communication from the abortion industry, and offer courage and support for the myriad new challenges you face after the Dobbs decision last year. Register today to secure your spot at this year's event at SamaritanSummit.org. On this edition of People You Should Know, we introduce you to Sarah Patterson, the CEO of the CareNet Pregnancy Center in Dane County, Wisconsin. In addition to the traditional services offered by a pregnancy help center, Sarah's organization also runs a successful maternity home, the Elizabeth House. She says the home is set up to serve women who are pregnant and in precarious positions. Either they're separated from their families due to distance or they're estranged for, due to broken relationships. Maybe they've aged out of foster care or maybe they recognize that their family are simply not safe people. And um, those women are the ones that are really, truly left out of the circle of care. And those are the ones which are often referred to as the least of these or the marginalized, the people that are living on the fringe. Those are the ones that we need to take in and we need to come around and offer them the support that they need. She says the Elizabeth House is set up as a family setting to give the women stability. In our home, we can accommodate up to seven moms and their children. Um, they may be pregnant and they may have up to one other child, and we can accommodate that toddler with us in our home too. She has her own bedroom and her own bathroom, but she shares all the common areas with the other moms that are living with her at that time. So we have a playroom and a kitchen and a dining room and a family room, just like anybody else. And then we have a room for our overnight staff because we are our particular home is staffed 24 hours a day. One of the primary goals of the Elizabeth House is to set the women up for success after they leave the home. So when they come and they live with us, we want to help them build more resources than just financial. We want to help them build all the essential resources that they need so that when they leave us, they can be successful, independent, and yet dependent 
on the community around them. Sarah says it's not uncommon for volunteers to get as much out of the experience as the residents themselves. They get so much from these relationships. They learn so much from these courageous and strong women who have determined that despite the pressure to terminate their pregnancies, they're going to continue them and they've overcome so many obstacles in their life and they are such an inspiration. Sarah likes to share the story of a woman who came into the Elizabeth House a few years ago as an illustration of what can be accomplished through a maternity home ministry. She was very worried about uh, being pregnant and she kept seeing this situation as one in which she would, if she continued the pregnancy, if she carried the pregnancy to term, she saw her future as very dismal. She believed that she would be struggling, that she would always have to worry about how she was going to put food on the table, how she was going to pay her bills, and just all the difficulties that were going to come along with being a single mom. And she really didn't think she could do it. But she had a life-affirming person in her life who brought her to us and who um, introduced her to us and asked, it really encouraged her to take part in our program. And this mom finally got the courage to say yes, and she applied for our program and moved in. And during her stay with us, she had a lot to overcome. She had come from a background where her family had... uh, abused her and abused her financially by taking money from her, um, using her name to run up bills that weren't hers. And she had to pay off all that debt. She had to work hard to get all that cleared so that she could afford her own place. And so she could get her own electricity and her own name because she had all these bills that she hadn't even used. You know, she she wasn't even responsible for them. And that was the beauty of our program because our home is completely free. Moms don't pay anything to live with us. We provide them with everything they need. She was able to use all of her funds to get out of debt and to build enough savings to be able to move into her own place. And, you know, the day that she moved out, we packed her up. We had some some people helping her move and we were blessing her with, we have another program that blesses her with all kinds of furniture and things for for her new apartment. Um, But she ran back up to her room and she was upstairs for quite a while. And finally, we were coming very worried because she wasn't coming back down. So we sent somebody up to check on her and she was sitting at her desk in her room. And she said, I wanted to come back and just walk around the room and pray for the next person who was going to move here. And I wrote them a note. I hope you don't mind, but I, I wrote them a letter. And in this letter, she said, you know, I know you're scared. I know you're worried. I know what it feels like to be in this strange place, but you can trust these people. They'll help you. And one day you'll be graduating just like I am. And I know that you can do it. And I just want you to feel the same peace and the same love that I felt when I was here. My thanks once again to Alan Parker with the Justice Foundation. It's an interesting question. Will public opinion sway our judges or will judicial rulings like Dobbs begin to influence public opinion? Either way, it's clear we have to be involved in the process. I love Alan's point about helping our friends in states that are hell-bent right now on passing pro-abortion laws. If you live in a pro-life state, consider yourself blessed, but also know our allies in other states have significant fights on their hands and they need our help. 
Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition. You can learn more at ChooseLifeCoalition.org. Our producer is Kate Ewell, our editor, Jacob McCormick. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Scott Baker. Thank you for listening to Dear Jane.